Tonight's Old Testament reading is from Psalm 63 and can be found on page four of the bulletin. Psalm 63. O God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory. Because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live. In your name, I will lift up my hands. My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food, and my mouth will praise you with joyful lips when I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night. For you have been my help, and in the shadow of your wings, I will sing for joy. My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. But those who seek to destroy my life shall go down into the depths of the earth. They shall be given over to the power of the sword. They shall be a portion for jackals. But the king shall rejoice in God. All who swear by him shall exult, for the mouths of liars will be stopped. This is the word of the Lord. Tonight we have a guest uh, preacher. Can we call you a guest preacher? <laughs> Matt Miller has been with us for a number of years. He's served on the staff uh, as a community life coordinator, and he's really had his hands on pretty much everything that we did as a church. And a lot of who we are today is in part due to Matt and his thoughtful approach to ministry and his love for the church. He is married to Elizabeth, who is also here with us. They've been They've been here. They, have, they didn't really leave. So they've been here with us. And um, Matt is finishing up now his final year at Reformed Theological Seminary here in Washington, D.C. And it's a joy for me to share the pulpit with him. Come on up, Matt. Uh, and uh, to be able to hear uh, God's word through Matt, who loves the word and uh, desires to be a student of it and uh, one day be a pastor somewhere. So I want to pray for you, man and uh, unleash you. Let's pray. God, we give you thanks for the ways that you love this church. God, we are so thankful for Matt and his years of love for this church, his prayer for the people, and his tireless work in giving shape to who we are uh, as a ministry. Thanks so much for that. And we now ask that you would be with him as he comes to give us your word. I pray that you would free his heart to speak with conviction the things that you have put in his heart. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Yeah, yeah. Well, greetings, everyone. Uh, as Mike said, uh, I've been here for a while, but it is great uh, to be up here worshiping with you and being able to preach here. Um, <clears throat> yeah, so we're doing a series um, about God's attributes in the Psalms. Um, I'm continuing this series, and we're going to finish up uh, at the end of August. Um, but tonight, we're looking at God in the wilderness, um, and we're going to see uh, how God works uh, with people in the wilderness and what that means for us uh, today. So... Um, there's an interesting side note on the passage that we're looking at tonight, Psalm 63. 
Um, for many centuries, this psalm was the inspiration for morning prayer. Uh, for the first verse, uh, where it says, earnestly I seek you, many theologians prefer to translate this, early I seek you. And to this day, some believe that the reason uh, churches meet in the morning uh, is because of this psalm. And as you saw in the song we just sang, um, it's the same thing there, early in the morning. So, the wilderness has an enduring popularity in America. A wilderness is a desolate land such as a desert, a mountain. And in the 19th century, Philosophers and writers such as Ralph Waldo Emerson and Henry David Thoreau went to the wilderness for inspiration and identity. This impulse endures in our day as well with things like hiking and camping. And then there's things like the Burning Man Festival, which I don't know if anyone here has been to. Um, you can talk to me if you have, I'm interested. Um, Burning Man's it spans a week in Black Rock Desert, Nevada, where thousands of people gather every year to express themselves through art and music. And their tagline is, Burning Man is the place to find out who you are, then take it a step further. <laughs> I don't really know what that means, uh, but I like it. Um, so if you've ever seen pictures of people dressed uh, in costumes and surrounded by glow sticks, or fire, uh, that's probably a picture of Burning Man if it's in the desert. Um, you also hear about people taking vision quests or some other type of trip to the desert or wilderness uh, to come up with new ideas for their company or get in touch with mystical forces. Uh, the idea is that just being away from everything, a special kind of clarity um, is obtained. The wilderness is also an enduring theme in the Bible, as it serves as the background for many different stories and important events. It's both a spiritual metaphor and a physical one, a physical reality. We're shown in the Bible that the wilderness isn't a special place to find your identity. It's a place where we often find ourselves empty of the things that typically fill our everyday lives. In your Bible, if you look, uh, it's not in our bulletin, but if you look in your Bible, Psalm 63 has a superscript uh, that starts before verse 1, and it says, while David was in the wilderness of Judah, and a lot of Psalms have these superscripts that say, you know, um, to be sung with cymbals and tambourines, and we usually just take that out because we don't say that, but in this case, it's really helpful to get the context, and I'll repeat it. It just says, while David was in the wilderness of Judah. Um, so most psalms don't give us this context. Uh, we just read them, sing them, and it's great. But when it does give us the context, uh, it's, it's great to look into that context and find out where this psalm came about. A Bible commentator, Derek Kinder, notes that the reference of king in verse 11, the word king in verse 11, tells us that this psalm was most likely written while David was being pursued by his son Absalom in the wilderness. We can find this story in 2 Samuel 15, and I'll give you a short summary in, in just a second. Psalm 63 starts out with a desperate longing for God and ends with a declaration of confidence in God's plan and goodness. I don't know about you, but when I read this psalm, I sense an immediacy, an urgency in David as he writes these words. 
There's a literary device that's called into the middle of things. It's also Latin, like end media race or something. Um, this literary device uh, starts off movies or books or any kind of story uh, where you're thrust into the situation and you have no idea what's going on and you need to get answers. Uh, the Pixar movie Ratatouille does this. Uh, at the start, there's a slow pan onto this cottage and it's raining out and you hear gunshots. Then you see the main character, who's a rat, break out of the window, carrying food over his head with this look on his face that's just like out of his mind. And the, the camera just pauses there, and the main character, who's the rat, starts explaining how he got to this situation. So as a viewer, we're like, I want to know what's going on. How, why is this guy breaking out of a window? Um, and so I kind of think that's what's going on here in Psalm 63, not so extravagantly, but uh, in another way. So we, we want to know why David, who's the author of this psalm, is in the wilderness, why he's desperate, why he's thirsty, why he's hungry. Uh, and we want to know just what's going on in, in his head, perhaps, when he's writing these words of worship. So let's look back at how David got to be in this situation. Historians believe that David might have been near the end of his reign as king when he wrote this psalm. Based on the research that they have, uh, they think he might have been focusing too much time on his building projects and not enough time focusing on his people's needs. And so David had many children, as we know, and one boy was named Absalom. And he was one of the few to make it into the Bible, and if you make it into the Bible, it's typically a good thing or a really bad thing. Um, and this guy uh, made it for the latter. Um, so Absalom had a, a penchant for vigilante justice. He prefers to take matters into his own hands. For example, when Absalom finds out his sister Tamar is assaulted by another man, he lures that man away from the city and has him killed before he's brought to the courts. So Absalom begins to believe that he could rule the kingdom of Israel better than his father David. In order to take power, he first gains the trust of Israel's people by settling their disputes himself outside by the city gate as they walk in and out. And he does this much faster than David could ever have done it. He does this for four years and wins over enough of Israel to attempt a coup. David gets word of his son's coup attempt, and he flees Israel to the River Jordan through the wilderness. And at this point, we find out that Absalom isn't really a good guy. When Absalom assumes the throne after David flees, he goes to the roof of the palace in the sight of all of Israel, and he sleeps with all of David's house servants that he left behind. He wanted to send a message to David that said, I have the power now, and I will humiliate you. Absalom then decides that this isn't enough. So he sets out to track down his father David in the wilderness and kill him. Yeah, this guy is he's serious. Um, so we might imagine uh, for David that this journey is deeply troubling and extremely tiresome. From the, emotional, from the emotional weight and toll of the thought of his own son rising up against him, 
to the physical toll from traveling through the miles of desert to get to the Jordan. Second Samuel tells us that David and his followers arrived weary at the Jordan. They were completely exhausted. But right now, David's in the wilderness. He's waiting, he's praying, and he's worshiping. So there are two questions that this psalm brings to mind that I'd like to talk about. First question is, what does it look like to worship God in the wilderness at a time when everything has been stripped away? And the second question is, where does the power to worship in the wilderness come from? So we're going to look at this psalm in two halves. The first half we'll call wilderness worship, and that's verses 1 to 7. And the second half is called wilderness power, and we'll do verses 8 to 11. So wilderness worship, wilderness power. So first off, wilderness worship. What does it look like to worship when everything's been taken away? David gives us a pretty good template. He's been stripped of everything, his kingship, his family, his relationships. His own son wants to kill him. All he has is a small band of soldiers and followers that are loyal to him. He's powerless. He's in the middle of the wilderness, both physically and spiritually. But we see right off the bat in verse 1, David goes to God with a needy, expectant heart. We might expect him to start with a question like, God, what are you doing right now? I'm David. I have nothing left. Yet he expresses his trust and love in God in a familial way. Not familiar, familial. He says, you are my God. If you look closely at verse 1, you are my God. He is intimately familiar with God and his love for him. And his soul is thirsting for his presence. Theologian Heinrich Bollinger talks about this relationship that David has with God. He says, It is not sufficient to have believed that God exists or even that he is all-sufficient unless you further believe that the same omnipotent God, the creator of all things, is your God. Indeed, the rewarder of all who seek him. And so we find that the God of the Bible is not some nebulous, distant God, but one who delights to enter into personal relationships with his people, and he does so here, as David demonstrates. This is a covenant-binding relationship that God has initiated, and it's the fountainhead for which the rest of this psalm, and you could say all other psalms, flow from. The covenant relationship is a personal relationship that God makes with his people. And it's the same fountainhead that we as Christian believers live today. We live from that relationship. So verses 2 to 5, David recounts God's love and faithfulness earlier in his life when he could worship with the people of God in the temple of Jerusalem. David sings to God for his love, his protection, power, and promises to make him, promises him, as long as he lives, that he's going to praise him. And one translation of verse 5, uh, where it says fat and rich food, 
I saw a translation say, my soul will be satisfied as with prime rib and gravy. And I'm like, oh yeah, I get that. Um, a lot of us here don't get that because you're, you don't eat meat and that's okay, but you can still think of a situation when you've left a meal just completely satisfied and the world feels right, at least for the moment. And that's what David's saying. He's saying his soul is deeply satisfied. And when it's night, David is calling to mind God's provision and power in verses 6 and 7. David finds cause to praise God in the midst of a physical and spiritual wilderness. He imagines himself singing in the shadow of God's wing in shade that will never leave him. So you kind of get a picture of David right now. He's kind of listing off all the things that are really on the top of his mind. He's really hungry, really thirsty, probably pretty sunburnt. And shade is like, you really want shade right now. It's the desert. Um, David is laid bare, but he is praising God. So how does David praise God like this, despite having everything taken away from him and not even knowing when this will end? Let's transition to the second half, uh, wilderness power. Um, let's look at verse 8. It says, My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. In the Bible, God's right hand is typically seen in three different ways. It secures victory in battle. It's an instrument of punishment for the ungodly. And it's the place of honor and blessing in heaven where Jesus Christ now sits in glory, interceding for us. And we see in this verse that as David's soul clings to God, God's right hand upholds him. When David is forced out of his job, away from all his comforts and security, He's emptied of the things that he's held onto for his peace and joy. Now he can clearly see that it wasn't his intellect or his goodwill or his good planning that was holding him up. It was actually God's right hand. I got this quote uh, from a friend. She uh, sent it to me. It's from Sarah Groves, and it's in one of her songs. Um, I don't know which one. But she says, The desert empties our hands of all the idols we cling to. So that, when we can, so that when we can open them to... Oh, I'm sorry, I'm butchering this. Sarah Groves would be so mad right now. Um, let me restart. The desert empties our hands of all the idols we cling to so that we can open them to receive whatever the Lord wants to give. In difficult moments, we all cling to something. Perhaps... You can imagine the times that you cling to idols instead of God when you're in a particular wilderness experience. Let's say uh, we get home from work. It's been a pretty terrible day. We're tired. Maybe we've got some bad news uh, from our family or from work. At this moment, we, we go to something, don't we? We, we? we gravitate towards something to make us feel comfortable. Alcohol, perhaps maybe playing video games for hours or binging on TV shows or looking at pornography. And all of these idols that we cling to in moments of vulnerability and fear, we see our hearts with clear eyes. When everything is falling down around us and we're tired and weary, we see that in our heart we don't actually trust God at all. 
And I wonder if you've experienced this, because I certainly have. Just like us, David has his moments to reject God and his goodness and to do any number of things instead of trusting in him and his plan for his life. But he sees God's right hand holding him up, and he knows that God has not abandoned him. Sometimes a wilderness experience gives us this type of clarity that we need to see the idols that we've been clinging to. Idols will not give us peace or comfort in the long term. The idols are actually keeping us from a life of powerful trust and confidence in God's hands. In verses 9 to 10, when David's idols are removed uh, from him in the wilderness, he regains powerful trust. And so he starts to boast about it. David confidently boasts about what will happen to the people coming after him, the evil ones, the evil people coming after him. He remembers that God has promised to bring justice and that David knows that whenever he, if he dies in the wilderness, his enemies will never prevail because God has promised this. And today the enemies of God are still around us, though sometimes they're harder to see. And we may see an article online that talks about how foolish it is uh, to be a Christian nowadays, that we're hurting ourselves and hurting others by believing in Jesus Christ and what he says in the Bible. But like David, we know the end of the story. Evil will be put in its rightful place, and everyone will bow down to our mighty God, and we can take heart in this. And as we look at verse 11, David continues to display a powerful faith in God's purposes. David says, But the king shall rejoice. And a theologian once said that in verse 11, David is asserting that God's gifts and his call are irrevocable, rock solid. In other words, David has a moment of clarity that gives him the ability to say with confidence, everyone who puts their trust in God will not be ashamed. If you're a believer, you're acquainted with the wilderness in some way or another. Some of us have endured a wilderness that has lasted for years, others less. You'll find that in some way or another, every Christian has had a spiritual wilderness. These experiences bring out a fresh clarity of the powerful nature of God's love and power amidst these trying times. And I encourage you, if you're, whether you're a Christian or not, to ask a fellow Christian um, about a wilderness experience that they've had. Ask them what they learned about God through this experience. And you can come up to me after the service if you don't know anyone here and want to ask. I assure you, these stories will move you. Many times in these stories, we'll hear how people started praying more and more. The worst things got similar to David here. Tim Keller sheds light on why that is. He says, prayer is the way to experience a powerful confidence that God is handling our lives well, that our bad things will turn out for good, our good things cannot be taken from us, and the best things are yet to come. 
In many ways, Keller is summarizing David's experience in Psalm 63. From the outset, David has a powerful confidence in the goodness and glory of God, that his horrific time in the wilderness will turn out for good, that his relationship with God can never be taken from him, and the best is yet to come. When I started thinking about Psalm 63, I asked a friend of mine if she could think of a wilderness experience in her own life. Uh, She recalled a time in her life when her marriage was in crisis and nearly all of her physical and spiritual strength had been sapped. She found that in her wilderness, her confidence in God's presence and goodness became the target of her doubt and insecurity. But in the midst of her darkest days, she felt God's presence and protective hand in many ways. And she wrote to me and described her experience, and I'll read that. She said, The simple fact of being able to find joy was evidence to me of God's presence and goodness. A breeze through the window in the morning while I was praying, an unexpectedly beautiful smattering of clouds on the horizon while I was running, a friend stopping by or calling or texting out of the blue. Because I was in such a lonely place, every single grace seemed straight from the hand of God. I think you'll find when you talk to someone who's had a wilderness experience like this, they wouldn't trade that experience no matter how hard it was because their closeness to God um, could not be matched by something else. It's odd that we wouldn't want to do away with some of the most trying times in our life But these are the times that we experience a closeness to God that is many times unparalleled. And so when we're in the wilderness, we have a choice to recognize and trust in God or turn to something else. And I would say don't miss this moment if you're in a wilderness and in the future to experience the power of God. If you're here and you're in the and you're in the midst of a time of despair, bitterness, you have nothing left, maybe you can barely get out of bed, maybe you've lost your job, maybe you just feel tired of trying to be a good Christian and doing good Christian things. Take this psalm as a reminder of God's presence in your life. Ask God for faith to trust in his goodness and protection and cling to him, and he will uphold you. The powerful trust and confidence David displayed in God is available for us today, and we need this power. This power is the Holy Spirit. Just as God had promised, David regained his throne, and just as Jesus promised, he rose from the grave three days after three days in the ground, and the good news of his grace for sinners like us transformed the world. The Holy Spirit enables us to believe this and to draw from it when we're in our own trials. If we receive Jesus, we put our faith in his work of grace on the cross. He has promised to uphold us by his Holy Spirit as we wait for his return. David drew on the Spirit for power to endure the wilderness in hope of glory. And today we draw on the Spirit for power to endure our trials. 
And praise God that we have so much more to draw on than David could ever have thought of. Jesus spent his earthly life in the wilderness, hungry and thirsty, enduring suffering on a massive scale, all to the glory of God. He made it through so that we would be able to draw from his power in our suffering. Romans 5.3 says, And not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. This is great news, and this is what I'm going to share with you today. So let's pray. God, thank you for this Sunday. We give you all the praise that we're here We ask that you would fill us with your Holy Spirit and give us trust and confidence to believe. We ask that you would be with us um, right now. In Jesus' name, amen.